1: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Insight Hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Insight Hour
0: Hi, this is Raghu Marcus, and I want to introduce this uh, talk from Joseph Goldstein. It's really of uh, deep interest for me. Well, it should be of deep interest for everybody, but it's around the concept of emptiness. And, and Joseph gave this amazing talk, and uh, I'm actually titling it The Zero Center of Emptiness which he mentions at some point uh, during the talk. And as he says here, that, that term, empty, is really not that appealing <laughs> to anybody. And how do we understand what that uh, term means? And um, so, of course, Joseph is so great at... Uh, the practical application of some of these, which uh, these terms, which at times can be very uh, arcane and complex. So, he starts with um, one experience, just touching on experiences of emptiness and and the, the ways that we we can experience it and have experienced it, and um, and and the first st- the starting point of emptiness is a lack of self-centeredness. Right? It's uh it's the notion, you know, our our common notion and the way that we live our lives from day to day is is that they revolve around this self-center. And we do things like uh, desire for new experiences, even as we know them to be continually changing. And he says, isn't it amazing that we continue to do this, living our lives, relying on the next experience to fulfill us even when we know it won't. It's kind of like a junkie, really. Uh, so uh, the idea of... Um, to counter this, of course, is the power of, uh, through the power of mindfulness, practice, meditative practice, the power of investigation, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit. We begin to enter into the gravitational sphere of the Dharma, of the way of things. We, we begin to get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness, rather than the self-center of I and mine. So this is a basic, critical uh, analyzation of what emptiness is. And, um, and, and and it's in reference to the I-me-mine that we live, the movie of me, that Krishnadas calls it. Um, and uh, he... He talks about, we have an address here, but at the same time we recognize the nowhere that we come from. So it's not that we have to go ahead and deny our being here and the subject, object, uh, or he says it best here, the challenge of living on the conventional level, the world of concepts and language, subject and object, of a sense of self and others. At the same time, staying connected to the more ultimate truth of emptiness of self. So that's that that is our basic challenge, and and you know Joseph talks more uh, here about the different ways in which we commonly experience uh, that sense of emptiness that he's speaking of here, and uh, it can be in an, in in an ineffable experience uh, through, it could be just after uh, real length of time of getting one pointed in meditative practice, that that experience can happen, where there's no subject-object, there's not that self-referential point of view, just for a brief moment, and we're talking sometimes seconds, but but the, it's the quality of that, and then the trust that you have in that uh, that uh, uh, enables you to create uh, the uh, way in which we can live, still staying connected to the ultimate truth, while living in the world. And there's uh, he mentions another he talks about another ways, of course, through our teachers, and he talks about this wonderful teacher that i do know about named dipa ma and uh, who had come to the center and and she came and uh, was bowing in front of a statue of the buddha and he just saw how empty that bow was to the empty uh image of buddha and and he also said, and this to me is the key in which ties together a whole bunch of things in my mind, but he also said it was love bowing to love. And, uh, and I t- to those, I'm sure many of you uh, have listened to different podcasts on the MindPod network. And, and you've heard me talk about our family of low-hanging fruit. I, I kid around with it on Mind Rolling with David Silver. Uh, these people who have been our family for decades. And the way in which we blend, and uh, meaning the we part, is uh, my experience, Ram Das, Krishna Dass from India, and our relationship with Neem Karoli Baba, and our relationship uh, with uh, Bhakti Yoga, the yoga devotion. And then Joseph and Sharon and Jack and their relationship with uh, Buddhism and how it meets in this, absolutely in this phrase, in his experience of seeing his teacher, Deepama. It was love bowing to love, emptiness bowing to emptiness. And I uh, recently uh, had this experience, um, this intimation of emptiness, working on a, a program that Ramdas did with uh, Roshi Joan Halifax and Frank Ostaseski around death and dying. And at one point, Ramdas was asked about unconditional love and the truth of it. And he described, and he went into the moment where he first experienced that with, with our guru, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji. And he, he got very, very uh, into the center of that love. And, and then he just kept repeating... About Maharaji, he was just empty, he said over and over. He was just empty. And I realized and, and, and had this experience, of course, myself with him, that there was, that Maharaji was devoid of any sense of an I, me, mine. There was nothing. He wasn't loving us. He was just being that state, which, which is described uh, so well. Uh, as Shunyata in Buddhism, and how Joseph refers to it here, with his own teacher Dipama. So this is a a a great great talk from Joseph around this subject of emptiness, uh, that is so very difficult for for many for most of us, that's for sure. So here it is. It's uh, Joseph Goldstein at his best. The Zero Center of Emptiness. And uh, please, uh, we appreciate your support, everybody. These podcasts are only available and can only be continued because of your support. And uh, so please do do go to mindpodnetwork.com, and in this case, slash Joseph, and just uh, help us out through the donation button or through... Uh, our Amazon link or Audible link, uh, or even buy a t shirt or two. Thank you. And here is Joseph.
2: One of the words in Pali and Sanskrit <laughs> that has tremendous implications for our practice in our lives is the term bodhicitta. And bodhi, as you know, means awakening. And jitta is the word for heart or heart-mind. <laughs> so we can understand bodhijitta as the heart-mind of awakening. So this has two levels of meaning. On the relative level, bodhijitta refers to compassion and compassionate motivation. That is the aspiration or the motivation to awaken for the benefit or the enlightenment of all beings. And if that aspiration inspires you, it's helpful to make that kind of dedication at the beginning of each day or the beginning of each sitting or at the end of the day. May my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all. Perhaps at the end of a sitting or the end of the day, we can dedicate the merit. May the merit of my practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. And it kind of connects us with that very ennobling aspiration. The Dalai Lama spoke of this uh, really beautifully in his typically very humble way. He said, speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. (laughs) When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the kind heart, which I try to explain to others and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. So just that's an interesting point. You know, although at times I do get angry, in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I'm really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. So we should uh, undertake this aspiration, I think, with a similar humility. But we can plant the seed. We plant the seed of this aspiration and then we we gradually water it and nurture it and nourish it. So on the relative level, bodhicitta is compassion. And on the more ultimate level, it refers to the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. And it's said that when compassion and emptiness are both present, enlightenment is unavoidable. So I thought it would be worth exploring these two aspects a bit tonight. I like that word, unavoidable. (laughs) Despite our best efforts to avoid it. So one of the transforming <coughs> realizations in practice is to realize that compassion and emptiness are actually not polarities. They're really the expressions of each other. And there's one teaching by a Tibetan, Chen uh, master. I think it was 18th century. His name was Shabkar. There's one teaching of his which beautifully encapsulates this union of relative and absolute truth, this union of compassion and emptiness. He said, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So tonight, talk about these three aspects. Actually, what they mean and how we can experience them. So how do we understand or how can we understand the meaning of intrinsically empty? For many people, the word empty or emptiness doesn't really seem all that appealing. You know, if you go up to somebody in the street, how about a little emptiness? (laughs) You know, it kind of conjures up notions of maybe blankness or a gray vacuity. But the Pali word and Sanskrit word for emptiness is shunyata. And in the Buddhist teachings, this word shunyata has a wealth of profound meanings. So I want to go through just a few ways that we can actually touch into this experience of emptiness for ourselves. Perhaps on the simplest level, we can understand emptiness to mean a lack of self-centeredness. Usually we think of self-centeredness as being a kind of personality problem. Now somebody's quite self-centered and maybe think they should go to a therapist to address it. But it actually has a more profound meaning. That is when we create or hold a self, a sense of self, to be at the center of our lives. Now where the sense of self becomes the reference point for all that we think and sense and feel, it's the idea that there's someone behind the flow of changing experience to whom it's happening. You know, we've talked about this a lot over these last weeks. It's that wrong view, according to the Buddha's teachings, of claiming thoughts and feelings and sensations, my thoughts, my feelings, my body, And we often, or perhaps even mostly in our lives, live in the gravitational field of this self-center. You know, when when we look at our hopes and our fears and our plans and our worries, our work, our relationships, our whole lives are revolving around this self-center. Know, around desires for having ever new experiences even as we know them to be continually changing it's amazing really that we continue to do this you know that we're living our lives relying on the next experience the next hit of experience to fulfill us even when we know that it won't. So this is this is kind of startling, you know, that, that our lives are unfolding, you know, based on this kind of desire. But as you also know through your practice, through a sustained and wise attention to the flow of experience, you know, through the power of mindfulness, through the power of investigation, through the power of wisdom. We begin to leave, at least at times, this self-referential orbit. We begin to enter into the gravitational field of the Dharma. Now we get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness rather than the self-center of I and mine. So our whole perspective begins to change. Rumi, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, the great Sufi poet, he said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. <laughs> you know, and this is a lot what Brian was talking about last night. We do have an address here, but at the same time, as we're living in our at our address, we really are recognizing the nowhere that we come from. So this is the challenge that we all have, and we have it on retreat, but you'll be having it uh, even more uh, clearly when you leave the retreat, the challenge of living in the conventional level. On the conventional level of the world, our conventional reality, you know, of concepts, of language, of subject and object, of some sense of self and other. And at the same time, even <coughs> as we're living in that conventional reality, staying connected to the more ultimate truth of emptiness of self. There was one Tibetan teacher who expressed um, the challenge of doing this very well. He said, it's not that you're not real. We all think we're real. And that's not wrong. But you think you're really real. (laughs) You exaggerate it. Uh, so that kind of captures it you know we are real but not really real (laughs) and somehow we need to hold both so tonight's talk is going to be following on Brian's beautiful talk last night of kind of the same theme how we can how we can hold and work with this understanding We can experience emptiness of self in many different ways. I'd just like to go through a few different ways where we actually already have the experience to some extent. We can get an intimation of emptiness of self just in our ordinary lives. You know, sometimes we just enter into an effortless flow of experience and it might happen playing music, it might be in sports, it might be, you know, in our work in some way where things seem to be going along all by themselves in a flow without a sense of self present and actually feeling that things are going on quite a bit better without it. You know, we've we've kind of gotten out of the way and there's there's this spontaneous flow that's unfolding. So many people, I think, you know, have intimations of this in their lives. We can also be reminded of the emptiness of self uh, by our teachers, you know, either by their presence or by their words. I think over these weeks, you know we've mentioned at different times our teacher Deepama, this you know amazing woman from India, um, who was just an extraordinary practitioner and developed you know high stages of realization and deep states of concentration and all kinds of powers of mind. but she was so simple and so uh, empty, empty of self and so loving what manifest was just this amazing quality of metta. And I remember one time, she was here for a three month retreat, uh, helping to teach. And she came in, and she bowed down to the Buddha, and I was just on the side observing. And it was so striking to me and so vivid. It was like seeing emptiness bowing to emptiness or love bowing to love or wisdom bowing to wisdom there was no one there you know and yet all of these qualities were manifest and so sometimes we get a transmission just like that from seeing somebody you know who who embodies that understanding so deeply sometimes it's the words of a teacher that can really cut right to the core of things. There's a story of a woman from Canada who was a student of Kala Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan teachers. She had been with him in India and Nepal and then went home to Canada after quite a few years with him. And this this goes back many, many years where there was not a lot of Dharma practice happening in the West, so she felt quite isolated and alone. So she wrote to him and said, the only thing that keeps me going is holding you in my heart. And some weeks, weeks later, she gets a card. It's just a little card with one line in it on it. The nature of the heart is emptiness. <laughs> I can hear, hear this, poor woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The only thing that's keeping me going is holding you in my heart. <laughs> the nature of the heart is emptiness. <laughs> but then, uh, some days later, or a week later, she gets another, another little message. When he wrote, <clears throat> When you practice the noble dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away. <clears throat> and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. You know, and so it's understanding that in one way ep- emptiness and the understanding of it cuts through our clinging and attachment. And yet what's left is not gray or empty in the sense we might think. The mind, the heart is filled with joy. The sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. <clears throat> One of the things that I noticed in being with you know, these really extraordinary teachers who just are living or embodying this realization of emptiness is that in being with them, <clears throat> they also reflect back to us our own places of attachment and clinging. You know, it becomes so obvious in the mirror of their emptiness. Okay, so sometimes we get intimations of it just in our ordinary lives in that effortless flow. Sometimes we get intimations or even transmissions of it through, you know, these great teachers. We also can experience emptiness of self and perhaps... um, most profoundly and mm, transformatively is in our meditation practice. Now, have you had, perhaps even for short times, experiences either in sitting and walking when suddenly things just seem to be going along by themselves? There was a strong enough momentum of mindfulness. You know, and this can happen as we practice. The momentum of mindfulness gets strong enough so that it doesn't need our continual effort. It's working by itself. And we begin to get a real felt sense of experience as being empty phenomena rolling on. It's all going on by itself. And so we're tasting, even for those short moments, Uh, a real sense of emptiness. In our meditation, if we're if we're really looking at this and investigating, we begin to see that there's no existent thing to which self or I refers to. And those words are convenient designations and they serve a purpose in the conventional world. So it's not that we get rid of those that terminology when we look deeply, what does it actually refer to? We see that there's no unchanging element in this process that's stable enough to be called self. You now, self is a designation. The word self is a designation. As I say, a useful one, but it's it could be understood in the same way and today's weather came in just on time because the image I use is that of a big winter storm. You know? So we use that word and we understand what it means, but actually there's no thing which is a storm independent of the snow and the wind and the cold These are the elements which, when they come together, we call storm. And it's a useful way to describe it. But there's no self-existing thing which is a storm, apart from these changing elements. And so the sense of self, or the idea of self, really refers to the changing weather patterns of our experience. Self is like storm. You know, it's a useful understanding and it makes for ease of communication. But as we look, we begin to see our experience in terms of the aggregate, so the sense spheres. We begin to see the momentariness of experience arising and passing so quickly. There's something I call NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, in the beginning of our practice, the NPMs are pretty low. Uh, I don't know, maybe 15, 15 NPMs. But as we practice, you know, we're just just noticing. And as the mind gets a little more still and quiet, the NPMs go way up, even within one breath or... You know, just hearing a sound, how many, different, how many different elements, how many different experiences are arising and passing within a single breath, or a single sound, or a single step? There's so much that's going on. So when we see that, we see that nothing is lasting long enough to be called a self. And so we are beginning to deepen our understanding of emptiness. Years ago, this goes back maybe 30 or 40 years, there was a woman from Colorado who was a student of Uba Kin in Burma, who was Goenka's teacher. Her name was Jocelyn King. And she had just a wonderful little uh, phrase, you know, which stuck with me all these years. He said, it's better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness than on the quicksand of somethingness. Better to stand on the firm ground of emptiness rather than quicksand of somethingness. But when we look at our experience, how often do we get lost in the quicksand of emotions and thoughts? You know, all the stories we tell ourselves, we we really sink into them forgetting very often their empty selfless nature so this is our practice you know it's like waking up to this deeper understanding of what's going on another way of understanding emptiness not only of understanding it actually experiencing it is something Brian spoke about last night and I want to reiterate because when we pay attention to it it's so obvious and that is that things are not subject or amenable to our will and this is one of the meanings of anatta selflessness or shunyata the ungovernableness of phenomena that things are following their own laws you know and as is completely obvious, we cannot say with any hope of success, may my body not get old, may my body not get sick. May I have only pleasant thoughts. You know, just a matter if you could come into the sitting, and <laughs> may I have no pain in the sitting, <laughs> how successful will you be? you know at times there's no pain but things happen not because of our will but they are arising out of appropriate causes and conditions it's not because they belong to us experience belongs to us in some way that we can command so if we want something to happen if we have the aspiration for something to happen we need to understand what are the appropriate conditions for that to arise. Now, having the thought, may the water boil, may the water boil, (laughs) we'll never get that cup of tea. We need to raise the temperature of the water by some appropriate means, some effective means. That is what is going to... uh, create boiling water. So it's the understanding of what conditions, what causes lead, lead to what? What leads to what? Actually, in some way, I think all of the Buddha's teachings could be condensed into that phrase. He taught what leads to what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Unwholesome states lead to suffering. Wholesome states lead to happiness. And then He went into ever more detail about that. This has some practical consequences for us in our lives. Pay attention when you're in some situation where it's obvious things are not conforming to your will. You know, it might be some condition of the body. Might be difficulties in a relationship. Or being at the airport two hours early and your flight is canceled. So it's interesting in all these situations, how often we personalize them as if we should have been able to control it, (laughs) instead of realizing all of these situations are arising because of a whole array of conditions which gave rise to that situation. Now, the more we see this clearly, the more we experience this particular understanding of emptiness, that things are following their own laws. There is a growing ability to let go of the illusion of control. We stop living in that illusion. And one of the very amazing consequences of freeing ourselves, at least to some extent, from this illusion of control is that we are able to see more clearly what are the actual conditions necessary to accomplish our aims. So clear seeing, letting go of the illusion of control, we come out of all the posturings of self And we actually engage in the activity of wisdom. There's an aspiration, whatever it may be, a worldly one, a spiritual one, there's an aspiration. And we see, oh, what's necessary to accomplish this? Sometimes I think that if governments and politicians could understand this truth. And how much of political discourse is posturing you know, without any regard for what's actually needed? The world would be a very different place. Okay, so certain, certain Buddhist traditions emphasize yet another meaning of emptiness. And this can become a very interesting part of our practice. And that is <coughs> recognizing directly The empty, sky-like nature of the mind. Padmasambhava was a great Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet. So he taught, it's certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial, like the empty sky. Now this next line is very important. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. Look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. So this takes it outside or the realm of Buddhist philosophy. It's not about that at all. The the instruction here is to look into our own minds so that we can actually realize it's empty, insubstantial nature. You know, when we look for the mind, there's nothing to find. And in the not finding, as one teacher said, in the not finding, that's the finding. That's what we want to realize. And it's very powerful and it opens up uh, a whole different way of being with experience. So in this practice, in this looking directly at the empty, insubstantial nature of the mind, this is not a deconstruction of the self. We're not taking the self apart through an uh, investigation of the aggregates or the sense spheres. But rather this way of looking is a direct, immediate recognition of the mind's empty nature. Now, what keeps us sometimes from this recognition or realization uh, was expressed. I don't think she was referring to this, but her from a a line of poetry from the Polish (coughs) Nobel Prize winning uh, poet Wislawa Simborska. And she's quite a remarkable poet, she said, there is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. (laughs) And it kind of captures, you know, we're so entranced with the somethingness of it. There's so much everything, you know, there's so much in experience and appearances that we miss or we overlook the empty aspect. But also a lot of care is needed here because it might be easier to create some idea of emptiness or get attached to emptiness, you know, or even some created experience of it. And I actually fell into that trap for quite a while when I first kind of was playing with these teachings, you know, and the idea, oh yeah, look for the emptiness of the mind, not you know, not the objects. I so, don't you know. It was weird. It was like a whole month of practice where I kind of, it's even hard to describe. I kind of backed into a corner. No object. No object. No object, <laughs> empty, <laughs> empty. 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 <laughs> And then hold on to that. It was ridiculous
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and very tension-producing. <laughs> Until I find that okay, this is clearly not the way. <laughs> I was just creating some idea, you know, of what emptiness might mean. And it can get even more. <laughs> that's it can get quite a bit more subtle than that. <laughs> somebody once came to Sokni Rinpoche, who's you know a young contemporary research teacher describing a wonderful experience of the mind becoming very spacious you know, and she was describing you know her experience oh yeah the mind just this great vast spaciousness and he made a very interesting uh, distinction he said, in talking about the, this empty nature of mind, it's not so much spaciousness as groundlessness. Can you get a sense of the difference? Spaciousness is already a created mind state. It's a mind state of spaciousness. Whereas groundless, shh, it's like this, nothing created there. That, that's the empty aspect, the groundlessness of it all. Okay, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant. So in this understanding, the nature of the mind is not just empty. It is also naturally radiant or luminous. And radiant here, or luminous, luminosity, does not refer to light. What it refers to Naturally radiant. <laughs> it refers to the innate. Knowing capacity. Cognizing capacity of the mind. You know, so Sometimes we say. Yeah, the mind is empty like space. But space doesn't know anything. So the mind is not space. It's space like. right? Or groundless. But it's much more than that. Because it has this knowing capacity. And this is why we call it mind. Buddha Dasa, the great Thai monk uh, of the last century, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the awareness faculty, we call it mind. Okay, so the mind is the union, the inseparable union of emptiness and clarity, the knowing, aspect. And one way to perhaps feel into this experience uh, is expressed in the first lines of a book about the history of the number zero. It's by Robert Kaplan. And the title of the book is The Nothing that is, and I just saw the title of this book, I, I, okay, here it is, <laughs> uh, that just, that captures it all, the nothing that is, so I bought the book, and the first lines were great, <laughs> and then the math got beyond me, <laughs> but the opening lines of the book really, really captured this union of awareness and emptiness it says, look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. So that's a, that's a wonderful way of expressing the nature of mind. Now look for zero, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. The union of its empty aspect and its knowing aspect. We could call it the cognizing power of emptiness. Now, what's interesting about this particular way of understanding the mind, and you know, as you've probably gathered from you know, all the many Dharma talks you've heard over these weeks and months, there are lots of ways to talk about this, and different traditions talk about it in different ways, but it's all pointing to the same thing. So this union of emptiness and clarity, emptiness and knowing, this is not something that's missing that we have to get. It's not something that we don't yet have. It's already here. This is the nature of mind. And we simply have to recognize it and come back to it, You know, as we let go of our various attachments and often subtle attachments. So it's already here. And we're simply coming back to the recognition of it. This is all summed up in one teaching of the Buddha from the Pali Canon, where he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. That whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. It's quite remarkable, you know, summed up in one line. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Again, this is reflected in a Tibetan teaching. It says, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume, In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. When the mind is free of grasping. When we settle back, not identified with anything as I or mine, then this union of emptiness and awareness is so apparent. So there's one image which describes this movement from attachment to awareness. From the deluded mind of a self-center to the awake mind of a zero-center. And this is the image of ice and water. Hmm. Appropriate today. You know, what is ice like? Ice is hard, it's solid frozen. It's the experience of the mind when we're lost in thoughts, when we're lost in the stories, when we're lost in emotions, lost in the past or the future or even fixated on the present. Ice is the experience of mind when it's contracted into an identification with what is arising. When we're identified with the body or thoughts or emotions or feelings or whatever it is that's arising, that contraction in the identification with the arising object is like ice. It's solid. So watch how often this contraction happens in the course of a day. This would be an interesting exercise. You know, as you're going through the day of sitting and walking, How often does the mind contract, become ice? You know, when it's caught up or identified with various, in various moments of desire or anger or worry or pride or impatience or fear or whatever it may be. Watch this movement. You're, you're just flowing along, empty phenomena rolling on. What is it that catches the mind? Where do we get caught? And feel the contraction of it. So, water represents the nature of awareness. You know, it's naturally radiant, it's that natural knowing. It's consciousness which is free of a self center. Water is unfrozen, it's the mind unfixated. Now, the great discovery is that water is none other than melted ice. You know, every time we come out from being lost in some mind drama and realizing, you know, when we come out, oh, that was only a play of thought. Right there, we've gone from ice to water. You know, when we're lost in it, the contraction of self and identification. When we see it, the same phenomena. Right, The thought may still be there no longer identified, the ice has melted. And it's just part of the ongoing flow. So what's important here to see is that awareness is not some far off state that we have to look for or get. It's rather this very mind that's simply unfrozen. It's not caught in attachment, not caught in identification. Now, one little subtlety here, you need to be a little careful because sometimes we think that we're in the free flow of water and it's really slush, (laughs) you know, where there are subtle attachments or subtle fixations, perhaps even an identification with awareness itself. So then it's not quite the free flowing of water. So in this open, unobstructed nature of awareness, empty of self, we experience the third aspect of the nature of mind. So it's intrinsically empty in the different ways we talked about, naturally radiant. It has this innate wakeful, aware quality, this capacity to know. And the third aspect is ceaselessly responsive. So this now gets very interesting because it's the way our understanding manifests. There is a great spontaneity and responsiveness to situations. It's like water flowing down a mountain and it's Finding the shortest way, water will find the shortest way down the mountain, dependent on the particular topography. So, one of the elements of Bodhicitta, of ultimate Bodhicitta, is that compassion or responsiveness is the very activity of emptiness. You know, for a long time, in certain Buddhist traditions, uh, there's a lot of emphasis given to the Bodhisattva vows, you know, and people take the vows to, you know, to save all beings, and it's, it's expressed in, in different ways. And I would read that and hear it and be inspired by it, but it just seemed impossible to me, you know, how am I ever going to save all beings? So it seemed like a nice idea but it was something for myself a little hard to connect with. But then when I heard these teachings on bodhicitta and compassion and emptiness and realized that compassion is the activity of emptiness, I understood these bodhisattva vows in a completely different way. You know, if they're resting on the shoulders of a self, it just seems impossible, you know, much too daunting. But if we realize that this compassionate activity of wanting to awaken or help or benefit all beings, if that's resting or coming forth from an understanding of emptiness, selflessness, then this is just the Dharma unfolding. It's not an I, it's not a self who's gonna be doing this. And so then everything seemed to be possible intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. You now, when we're in that empty, aware space, then the mind is naturally responsive to the world. We, we begin to get engaged with the world you know, in a very uh, spontaneous way. And it manifests in lots of different ways. There's not, there's not just one way it's gonna show itself. We basically become responsive to the needs of beings in whatever way is possible in a particular situation. Sometimes it's simply a shift of attitude. I read an interview uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi, the democracy leader in Burma, an amazing woman. She had been under house arrest, I think for close to 17 years or something like that. And you know, some years ago she was released from a house arrest, and the political situation in Burma has, has changed somewhat. But in the interview, it was with an Australian newspaper, and they were asking her, you know, the generals, the military, are just a brutal re- regime. And for her, you, know, she was under this house arrest for so long. Uh, and they asked her, Didn't you wa- "Don't you want to bring the generals down?" You know, there's people who uh, were doing terrible things and her response was no I want to bring them up And I thought quite a quite a different attitude than many people might have you know, no it's not it's not for revenge and it's not can I help to bring them up can I help to awaken them from ignorance you know, sometimes This responsiveness, the nature of mind being ceaselessly responsive, sometimes it takes the form simply small unregarded ways, maybe it's just an act of friendliness or an act of generosity, no big thing. But it's a responsiveness to the moment. We shouldn't overlook, you know, these little opportunities to allow that to manifest. The Dalai Lama said, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. It's, just, <laughs> it's such a simple thing, but very difficult to do. How would it be to go through life treating everyone we meet as an old friend? You know, to be so uh, back in this experience of empty, aware responsiveness, you know, we're, we're, we're outside of our stories and we treat everyone as an old friend, It'd be a very different way of going through the world. Sometimes compassion manifests has the willingness to learn. We've experienced this a lot here at IMS, and I think we've mentioned this over the the last months. Now for the past five or six years, IMS has been committed in in a significant way to just the whole issue and question of diversity and inclusion. And when we started, I mean, the most one of the most amazing uh, realizations for me personally, and for a lot of us who were working on this, was just how clueless we were with respect to so many issues of exclusion, you know, whether it's around race or gender or sexual preference or a lot of the things Brian mentioned last night. And so over these last five or six years, there's been a huge learning curve you know, of just opening to what is so obvious. And yet, because it's so easy to live in the comfort zone of what's familiar to us, we often are just unaware of the magnitude of suffering that exists in our society and in many societies you know because of racism or because of homophobia or because of you know whatever the particular uh, form of exclusion is and so compassion this, this responsiveness is really manifest just as a willingness just to learn to open to what we don't know And this actually will bring us close, will open us and bring us closer to the suffering that is existing in the world. And it's this openness and willingness to come close to suffering, which is the condition for compassion to arise. So it's all interrelated here. So this has been a very personally uh, rewarding endeavor, both. Both for myself and also just for IMS as an institution, and sometimes compassion, this responsiveness, manifests in acts of tremendous determination and courage. And there are, you know, striking examples of this. We think of people like Nelson Mandela, you know, or Martin Luther King Jr. Or where in the face of tremendous anger and hatred and hostility, somehow they manage to keep their hearts open. So this is quite remarkable. There's a doctor by the name of uh, Paul Farmer. Perhaps some of you, there's a book written about him called, by Tracy Kitter called Mountains Beyond Mountains. He's done a lot of work. He's done a lot of work in Haiti, and in many other countries now around the world, uh, working with AIDS and T.B., and, and he's, he really puts himself out there. And this was a story from that book, the book about his life. We had set up a clinic in Haiti, and a lot of people, you know, were coming. And then he took a few days to go off into the mountains to treat uh, just two families you know who needed help. And his colleagues criticized him for that, he said, you know, you're going to spend all this time for two families and so many people are coming here who need you. And this is what he wrote. If you say that seven hours walk is too long to, to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong in the world. I just, that's such a beautiful encapsulation. The idea that some lives matter less is the root that's all of all that's wrong in the world. And so it's this compassionate responsiveness which is, in the nature of the mind, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. The more we operate from this empty, selfless place, the more this responsiveness manifests. Now, what's important, I think, is to understand that there is no hierarchy of compassionate action. There's no particular prescription. For how we manifest this in the world. Now, the field of compassion is limitless because it's the field of suffering beings. And in this realm, we each find our own way, you know, based on our interests, our talents, our capabilities. So there's no one way to be compassionate, it's the responsiveness to suffering. And it will show itself in so many ways. It may take the form of an active engagement in the world. It could also take the form of sitting in a mountain cave for lifetimes. If the motivation, if the aspiration is to awaken to benefit all. And just think of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha before his enlightenment, as the stories go, countless lifetimes as a renunciate. You know, living by himself and I could just hear, you know, his family saying, what are you doing? You're not helping anyone. What are you doing in that cave? <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard that from anyone? <laughs> <laughs> and yet it was all that work that he did for, for perhaps countless lifetimes. Which finally flowered in the hugely compassionate energy of his awakening, which we are benefiting from 2,600 years later. You know, the power of that. So it's not to judge, you know, not to think, oh, there's one way that we have to to manifest this. We need a really great humility as we walk on this path. Dalai Lama said, changes in attitudes never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. And so even as we're inspired by the idea of Bodhicitta. May my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all. And this can be a powerful source of energy for us in our practice and in our lives. We need to undertake it, you know, with a a huge amount of humility, without grandiosity. We're just planting this seed, we're watering this seed. Just to close Dilko Kense Rinpoche, another of the really great mass Tibetan masters of the last century. He taught when you recognize the empty selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this is how the different levels of reality, the relative level, the ultimate level, emptiness and compassion, this is how they all come together. When we recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others, dawns uncontrived and effortless. So This is really the great work that we're all doing here together.